Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for bringing us together. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you have given us the gift of children. You have given us the trust of us of a generation that can put their trust in you. Lord, we pray that in our homes we would create the context where disciples are born and bred. Lord, we thank you for not leaving us in the dark. Thank you for giving us principles that will transform our lives so that we may become the kind of parents, the kind of shepherds that we need, not only for our children, but, but also for our children's children. We pray and thank you uh, for these things, for this opportunity, in Jesus' name. Well, this is our, our final week, week three. Um, we've been looking at the preeminent passage in the Bible, the Old and New Testament, that calls parents to disciple their children. And as we saw last week, the focus of the text, instead of being on the children, how to tweak them, how to fix them, if you will, how to apply techniques to them that'll change them, make them disciples, God turns his focus on whom? Parents, us, grandparents. And what God says through this text is basically, I want to change you, heads of households, and make you an agent of change in the life of your children and grandchildren. We saw that God gave us four transformative principles in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, especially 6 through 9, or 4 through 9, included in the great Shema of Israel. And the first transforming principle that he gives us as Christian adults, and this applies to you even if you're not married yet, but you long to be and you want to have children someday, this, by the way, applies to you even now because we're to be about discipling other people, right? And so these principles apply to us. They're principles of discipleship. And God wants to change us into the kind of disciples he desires so that we may be change agents in the lives of other people as well, not just our children. But the first transformative principle we looked at was found in Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And it is the call to love God with all our hearts. And we visited the idea that no... No one can be as transformative or impact their children for a love of God more than a parent. If they see that we genuinely love God, they are drawn to him. I'm a preacher's kid, okay? A PK, you've heard that term before. I've known tons of preacher's kids, and we have a rep for being rebels. And you know what? Unfortunately, that's true of a lot of PKs. And the main reason why that is so is because they see dad up in the pulpit. And then when he comes home, he's different. Dad always has time for people in the church. And he's outside of the home a lot. And he's ministering, ministering, ministering. ministering, But when he comes home, he's tired and he just wants to be left alone. They fail to see a true integrity between what is preached and what is lived. And you know what? That repels kids. So we need to pray for our pastor too, right? And we need to make sure that he has time to, to, to mentor his family and to love on his family and to give time to his family. That's one of the reasons I took the last three weeks. But we are called to love God because that genuine love of God will draw our kids to himself. And then we saw that we had to become not only lovers of God, but men and women who love God in truth. So we are called In verse 6, to become men and women of the word. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your what? On your heart. And we saw that that's the broadest term in the Hebrew language for the term heart. It means the inward you, the real you, the part of you that lives forever if you die right now. It is your mind, your intellect. It is the seat of your emotions where you feel. And it is the seat of the volition where you will to do. And we are to take the word of God and allow it to enthrone our lives and spread its light to every facet of our existence. 
So we are called to love God in truth by becoming men and women of the word. And today we're going to look at, at these two last principles. That is that we are to live purposeful lives. And we'll see what that means in a second. And also people who live not only purposeful lives, but people who live a life of biblical passion. Let's take that third principle right now. What do I mean by saying that we need to live lives of purpose or, or intention. What we mean by that is simply this. We need to seek to live the truth in the context of life because truth, by necessity, needs to be modeled. That's where people really look or learn when they see the truth being modeled. Truth has to adorn the life of the parent. In other words, it's like what David was even praying. It's, we don't want to just have intellectual knowledge, as important as that is, and let our Christianity be theoretical. Our children need to see that love for God, that knowledge of the truth, adorning day-to-day lives. And that, guys, how God basically called the Israelites to pass on their faith to their children in the context of daily life, not through a special formula or a seminar or a method or some kind of ritual or some class of specialized youth priests. <laughs> God said, take my truth, my precepts, and teach them before your children in the context of everyday living, purposeful living. The Jews are called to teach their children not by accident, but diligently, by intention, in the flow in the warp and woof of everyday life. Let's, let's look at verses 7 through 9 here. This is the central paragraph. In fact, I'm going to give you kind of like a blow-by-blow uh, uh, rendition of the text and then one of the major points at the end. But back up to verse 6 for the sake of context. It reads like this. This is God speaking through Moses. And these words to Israel... Which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, the seat of the mind, the emotions, and the volition. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them. Now just stop right there for a second. God says you are to let my law, my words, enthrone itself in your life. And because my word is on your heart, it's going to be where? The lips. What do you talk about? That shows a lot of where your heart is. Jesus taught this principle in Matthew, I believe it was 12, 34, and he used it both negatively and positively. He called out the Pharisees, Pharisees and said, you hypocrites. You, you speak evil because it's evil that fills your heart. Because a man speaks out of that which fills his heart. The, the good man from his good treasure, the evil man from his evil treasure. But because God's word is on our heart, it's going to be perpetually on our tongue. We shall teach it diligently. We shall talk of them. Then notice just the context of this teaching. When you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, that encompasses all of the day long, doesn't it? From morning until nighttime, we are to be absorbed in the transference of truth to our children Because the word of God is always on our heart and mind. From morning until evening, whether you're chilling in your house or whether you're outside of your house, whether you're with friends or alone with your kids, whether you're going to bed or you're rising up, let these words instruct your children. And then he says this, and here we're back to, really, verses 4 and 5. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and shall be as, they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You guys ever seen phylacteries? Tefillin? And you may have seen pictures of the Western Wall with Orthodox Jews praying, and they have their talid, that's their, their whole shroud, their poncho, if you will. And to the, the talid are woven strings. They're called tzitzit. It's an interesting name. Tzitzit, I like saying that. But... Um, the phylacteries or the tefillin are those little leather boxes that kind of look odd on the forehead and on the hand, held there in place uh, by leather thongs 
on the left hand arm and then on the forehead. And these little leather boxes have scripture in them, beginning with the Shema, verses 4 through 9, and then some other ones. This is a spiritual principle that the rabbis around the 4th century began to interpret literally. And that's when the whole tradition of the phylacteries or the tefillin came into existence. And they were around when Jesus was there, and he didn't knock it. What Jesus said he was against was the hypocrisy. Because even in Jesus' day, what the religious leaders and the teachers were doing, they were taking the phylacteries and making them bigger. And and they were competing with one another because the bigger the phylactery, the more pious the person was the idea. So they would have these huge boxes, you know, on their head and on their forehead. And Jesus said, you missed the whole point. What am I after? I'm after your mind and I'm after your heart. God says, I want you, again, this is God repeating himself, to first of all, put my words in your mind. Now here the mind is prioritized. Heart, soul, and mind You know, everything is given to us in verses 4 and 5, but here the mind is singled out. He goes, I want you to understand my words, my law. And that's hugely important. Jesus, when he quoted the Shema, added to the Shema the word mind. You shall love the Lord your God with all your soul, might, your strength, and mind. There's a priority of the mind. Why? Because we need to understand the word so that we might apply the word. You do understand this, don't you, that unless you have the meaning of the text, you don't have the Bible. The power of the word is in the meaning of the word. You can have your home stacked from floor to ceiling with Bibles. They won't do you any good if you don't understand them. The, the Bible, the Word of God, is in its meaning. And we just celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, right? What was one of the rallying cries of the Reformation? Sola Scriptura. You know what the Reformation did? And my grandparents grew up with this, where they, they were Catholics, and they would go to Mass, and the priest would stand towards the altar, the crucifix, the whole time. And he would speak to the liturgy in Latin, reading from a Bible in Latin, which the people couldn't understand. And the Reformation came along, Luther came along, and before him, um, Tyndale and many others, John Knox. And they took the Bible, which was in Latin, and they translated it into the language of the people, German, English. And that was one of the things the Reformation did. It brought the light of God's word. All of a sudden, you could read, I could read the Bible for ourselves without the aid of a priest who wouldn't explain it to us anyway. But it restored the word of God to the mind of the believer so that it could rest, therefore, on the emotions and the will. God says, I want you, as a matter of priority, to understand my word because without understanding, without the word being on your mind, all you have with you is leather binding, wood pulp, ink. The worth of the Bible is in its meaning, and that's why here God says, they shall be as frontals on your forehead and then basically being expressed in your hand. Another leather box is tied to the hand, and the scripture was put in there as well. And the word hand, the term hand in the Bible is often used to speak of a man's work, his life, his character. That's why Moses prayed in Psalm 90, O Lord, confirm the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Let this work that I've done for you for 40 years in the desert be confirmed by you and let it be fruitful. You do it, God. Confirm my work, my hand. The Apostle Paul, when he asked men everywhere, 1 Timothy 2.8, he said, I want men everywhere to pray. And then he says, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, Paul is not giving us a posture there for prayer. If you want to pray with your hands raised up, by all means, do it. 
If you want to rest your hands on your lap, by all means, do it. If you want to put them deep into your pockets, do it. The important thing, the operative phrase in there is without wrath and dissension. That's what defines holiness, and that's your hands. That's your life. Paul says, I want men to pray everywhere with a pure life, a pure heart. That's what God is after. Here, Moses tells his people, God tells his people, let the word of God occupy your mind so that it drives the work of your hand that you constantly live before your sons and daughters. Let them see that my truth belongs in the context of everyday life. And then verse 9, he says, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Have you seen a mezuzah in a Jewish home? That's another little box. We like boxes. <laughs> Affixed to the, the doorway, the entryway, the gateway. What, what's the gateway to your house? It's the first thing people come into, right? God says, I want my word to be a sentinel, as it were, a guard in the front of your house that my word decides, my will decides what goes out and what comes in. Let it protect your home. And we have... A mezuzah in our home, too. I would make the rabbis really mad because what I, the scriptures I put in there are from Colossians about Jesus being God. <laughs> but it's there to remind me of something. It's there to remind me that pop culture or my neighbors, as wonderful as they may be, or our friends or our family, they don't determine what comes in and out of my house. God's word does. It's not there as a... Cult repellent, although it comes in handy when they come, it's like, <laughs> and then they say, oh, yes, we believe in the God of the Bible, too, and I say, no, you don't, let me tell you why, but it's there because it rules over my home, it determines what is right and good for our family. Now, let me just give you the upshot of what this paragraph has told us. It's telling us, what scripture is saying here is that in principle, the main educational institution for the moral formation of our children, for the development of character, for the development of the intellect, that needs to be the home first and foremost. The home is that transformative impact on, has that transformative impact on children when they see the truth lived out. Now listen, does that mean that everybody needs to pull out of public schools or private schools and homeschool? No, that's not what this is teaching. But what this is teaching is this. We need to make doubly sure, doubly sure, that the covenant activity of God, that is what we are bound to do, right? What God expects us to do. We need to make doubly sure that the covenant activity of God, the formation of the intellect, the formation of moral fiber, the formation of character, that needs to happen in the home in the flux of everyday life because it is not the responsibility of any outside institution. It's not the school's responsibility to morally shape your children. And it's not, as we have said before, it's not the church's responsibility either. The church is there to come alongside and to supplement and to encourage parents and grandparents and equip them and, and reinforce what's taught in the home. But that responsibility of developing our children, mentoring our children spiritually happens in the home as we love God visibly, as we adorn our lives with the word of God day in and day out and we contextualize truth. Now we need to teach our children catechistically too, right? If you're doing a catechism, great. But we must also, by emphasis, that the teaching that is displayed here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 happens in the warp and woof of daily life. That's when truth takes firm root, when children see it alive in the life of their parents and grandparents. I remember many years ago now, just to tell you when, my, it's when my kids were little, okay? I think Josh was the eldest. He was about 12, 13 years old. And uh, I was invited to speak at a camp in uh, southwestern Colorado, the Sangre de Cristo 
range of mountains. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but they're beautiful. And I, I went to that camp some 18, 20 times in, in the span of 10 years. But uh, it's beautifully set in the Colorado Rockies, and the reason they call the mountains Sangre de Cristo, which means blood of Christ, is because when the sun rises, the mountains turn a blood red. It's one of those fantastic things I've, I've ever seen in my life. But um, I was invited to come and speak at this camp, and most of the time we drove. A few times I had, because of scheduling, I had to fly in. But whenever I could, I would go up with my family. And we treated like a road trip. We are road trippers. We love being stuck in a car together for hours upon hours upon hours. We somehow convinced the kids that that was really fun. You know, it works for us. But the tradition says we pack up the car the day before, and then when we're all done, we leave it pointing nose down on our driveway so in the morning we can get in and go. Back when the kids were little, we'd get up at a quarter to three, and have the kids go to the bathroom. That's part of a dad's job. Um, and then they get in the car and we start driving by 3.30 while it's still dark and cool. Because in order to go to Colorado, you got to traverse, you know, um, Nevada and Utah. And Colorado is also kind of hot that time of year. This is June. So we were taking off and, um, you know, hot piping, deep roasted coffee, sunflower seeds, and my kids are sleeping, and my wife and I get like an hour and a half or two just to talk. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. You know, my best friend with coffee, and we just drive, and we talk about anything and everything. And what usually happens is about an hour and a half, two hours into the deal, the kids sleep for the first four hours, or when they were little. Uh, Val, about an hour and a half into the thing, two hours, needs to take a nap. And that's good, because he needs to spell me later. So Val went to sleep, and then it was just me and God. Got my coffee, got my sunflower seeds, got my earbuds, got Stephen Curtis Chapman going at that day, I remember. And I was just, I was in seventh heaven. It's just me and God in the darkness. And my beautiful family all sleeping. But anyway, I started praying and thinking and for some reason, the verses that kept coming to my mind and the principle that kept coming to my mind, and I just, I figured I'd let the Holy Spirit teach me, were about verses and stories in the Bible that taught me about God's faithfulness. How he is trustworthy. He is worthy of our trust. And we can lean the full weight of our trust on him because he is faithful and takes care of us, right? It's kind of like the upshot of what I was thinking. I was really enjoying my time in the Word that morning, and then as my kids woke up at around 7.30, you know, I looked at my kids and I said, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm the dad, I'm going to lead my kids in a, in a family devotion, you know. So I started waxing eloquent about trusting God because he is trustworthy and he will take care of us even when things look bleak and dim. And I was talking, and as I was talking, I was thinking to myself, Man, this, this is really good. I mean, this is uh, printable. And I had to keep my eye on the road, and I was so impressed with myself, I couldn't really look back and talk to my kids. But I'm sure they were aghast in the back seats, going, Father, you are so wise. You are like Apollos of old. You're just eloquent in the word, aren't you? Oh, you're like Birkhoff's systematic theology, only not so square and with legs. You are just so full of the Bible, Dad. That's what we will call you, Bible Father. You are our own Bible Father. No, because you are accessible, we will call you Bible Dad. Bible, da Bible Dad. That's my Bible Dad up there driving. That's Bible Dad. Now, mind you, I didn't hear them say that or, th or, or express that, but I'm sure they were thinking it. I know I was and so we were going along, and by the time I'm finished, you know, here's a preacher with a car full of people with nowhere to go. They can't escape. I, it's perfect. But by the time I finished my little soliloquy, my little spiel, I, it was time to pull over and get some breakfast. So we got breakfast, and then we keep going to St. George, Utah, our first fueling stop. 
And uh, Val tells me or asks me right before we take off again, honey, you want me to take over the wheel because you're going to get sleepy. I go, oh, no, 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 I'm a guy. I can drive all the way across the Arctic, you know, on no sleep and nothing to eat for days but coffee. I'm a driving dad. No problem. I said, okay. And what happens, happens every time. About 20, 25 minutes into the drive, I'm seeing double. I'm drooling. You know, and I said, oh, Val, you got to take over. I got to catch up. So we pulled over, switched seats. Fell asleep like that. And I don't know if you've ever driven that part of I-15 as you're going towards Utah, but you go through the Nevada desert, Mesquite, you leave Mesquite, and then you start to climb in this, it's called the Virgin River Gorge. It's a beautiful, rugged canyon. And it's very isolated. It climbs 1,500 feet in about 35 miles or so. So you're constantly, as you're going north, you're going up. And it's very hot. I remember it was 110 degrees that day. And we were climbing. I was asleep, drooling on my pillow. And all of a sudden, in my zombie-like state, I hear, Marcelo, Marcelo, wake up. Wake up. And she starts rubbing my arm. Wake up. And I go, Honestly, officer, I thought it was going a lot slower than that. No, no my guilt, just speaking. I didn't say that, but I said, no, what, what's, what's wrong? What's, what's the matter? I was confused. She said, there's something wrong with the car. And I go, well, what's wrong with it? She goes, every time I give it gas, it begins to lose power and sputter and acts like it wants to stall. And I said, and this I did say, well, back off. Maybe it's trying to pass a hairball, I said, <laughs> and it's choking on it, so like a cat, you know, the, ah, does that thing? So back off and then punch it and maybe it'll pass it. It's worth a little try, you know. So she did that, she punches it, the whole behemoth van conversion, Ford van conversion, just stalls outright. And we're climbing up, there's barely a shoulder and the, well, the column locks up. Steering column. And so both Val and I are barely able to coax that big useless machine over to the side of the road. And I never liked that van. <laughs> I could stand up on it, but who cares? I couldn't drive in it. You know, so I pulled it up by the side of the road, and we're stuck there. And it's 110 degrees. And at that time, we didn't know Val was pregnant with our fourth. And I'm thinking, great, this is just peachy. You know, this is fantastic. Fantastic. So I did what any red-blooded American would do. I got up to check under the hood. So I went, and you got to understand, I know schmaltz about cars. I don't know anything about cars. But it's my duty as a man to check under the hood. <laughs> so I had Val pop the hood, and I propped it up with that thingy. <laughs> and I'm looking at this tangled mess of of hoses and wires and metal and pieces of engine and it looks like the like you, you ever you know see a Star Wars movie those uh, <laughs> those uh, galactic uh, what do you call them star destroyers and the bottom just looks like somebody had a lot of fun with pipes and stuff <laughs> and it's all in the size of about a medium-sized cooler and I'm thinking Man, Ford mechanics must have freaky small hands, you know, but there's nothing gushing, there's no steam venting, there's no fluid leaking, and I don't know what's going on. I said, oh, yeah, we got a problem here. And I said, well, well what's the problem, honey? Well, it's a mechanical problem. We need a mechanic with freaky small hands. So I got back in the car. And I went from being a zombie to being clueless to being really angry. And I was mad. I was just beginning to steam. And I remember grabbing that steering wheel. And I started kvetching a prayer. Kvetching means complaining. I said, Lord, I really don't appreciate this. I mean, I'm doing this for you. And here we are. We're in nowhere America, in the middle of an oven. It's a volcano, I'm convinced of it. I, I have to be in a place 800 miles away tomorrow 
and I have no way to get there, and I have my wife and children to take care of. I should have listened to my mother. I should have been a doctor. I don't appreciate this. I was mad. And that's when it entered my mind. I just want to hit the dashboard. I just want to punch it. Because for all I know, it could be the dashboard's fault. You know, the, the irrational things you're thinking when you're mad. And uh, right before I punched it, I had the sense to just look, glance back at my family. And there was Josh, my eldest, who was beating with sweat and was scared. He's obviously, evidently frightened. My Josiah was just a little, little four-year-old dude, barely, would get that wrinkled brow and his fleshy forehead. You know how kids have flesh right here, a little cushion? It would all wrinkle up and his nose would flare out, his little nostrils, and he would look back and forth like this. He had that look like it's hot or in the desert, and I'm probably going to be eaten by an iguana, you know. <laughs> and he's, then he's going to eat Bible dad, poor Bible dad. And then I look over to my little girl, and she's in the crook of my wife's arm, and she's crying. And little girls, as I've said before, do something to their daddies when they cry. And we'll move heaven and earth to assuage your tears, right? Okay, honey, no, no more crying. Okay, stop, stop crying. What do you want daddy to do? I'll do anything. You want daddy to hack his legs off at the knees? Okay, I'll do it if you'll stop crying. And I thought to myself, okay, if I hit that dashboard right now, I'll absolutely crush my family. And I'll probably deploy the airbag and look really stupid. <laughs> so I remember just looking to heaven and said, saying, Lord, help me, please. Help me to trust. And I turned around, faced my family, and I said, hey, hey, <laughs> glad to see everybody here. Um, remember, guys, that little spiel did? I did when things were cooler and hopeful and everything was running. Well, let's just trust the Lord with our situation, okay? And I uttered one of the most eloquent prayers I've ever uttered. And it went something like this. Lord, help, please. Thank you. <laughs> and I walked outside of the car again, probably to check the tire situation. You know, to make sure there's four of them because... That could also be the effect of our problems. And right when I stepped out, this older gentleman in a VW, VW rabbit pulled up right behind us. And he said, do you need some help? Yes. <laughs> Easiest question I've ever fielded. But he took us to the port of entry station in, in Utah. We called AAA. They towed us into St. George. They put a, a Band-Aid fix, a new fuel filter, because it was a fuel pump, apparently, that is inside the gas tank. Thank you, engineers. Um, and so you got to drop the whole tank and you fix it. So all we could do was put a Band-Aid on it, and that night we crawled into um, Green River, Utah. We were able to get one of the last rooms in this little town. There was just a Conoco there at that time. And we didn't have any food to, uh, to buy, so we just, but in our stash we had Cocoa Puffs and we had milk in the cooler. So that was breakfast, I mean dinner that night, and we loved it. And the kids and me, we were going crazy. We were just bouncing off the walls. It was like an 80s rock band, you know, and just jumping up and down. We were so grateful to have a safe place to stay for the night. And in the midst of all this revelry, I see Rebecca across the room, and she's got this aha look on her face. Were you six, Rebecca? Yeah, I think so. And she runs to me. And she tugs on my, t on my, my shirt and says, Daddy, Daddy. I said, what is it, honey? She said, we really can trust God because he does take care of us. And I looked at those big, beautiful green eyes and I said, didn't I tell you? <laughs> Bible dad. Hang with me, girl. I got a lot more where that came from. Bible dad. Actually, I didn't. All I, could, I had a Mike Myers mo moment. I looked into her beautiful eyes. I started getting teary, and all I could do, I was proclaimed, and I, all I could do was say yes. God is true. 
Now, I could have lectured from Temecula to Montrose, Colorado on the faithfulness of God and that he's worthy of our trust and that we can lean on him and that he does always, always take care of us. But you know, my children wouldn't have learned that lesson half as well had they not seen the truth, not perfectly modeled, reluctantly modeled, but that truth living out, adorning our everyday ordinary lives. Because that's how truth is learned, when it is couched in daily living. And this text screams out every day, ordinary day. And it assumes a couple of things I think that we have to come to grips with, guys. It assumes that, first of all, we're going to give our children time. Look at all the time indicators. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Common denominator, time. And this is a big challenge for modern families to give our children time because we are pulled in so many directions. A hundred miles an hour going in separate directions. But it assumes that we give our children the lion's share of our time. And I get some pushback from parents at this point. Because I, I'll tell you, if you hang around me for any length of time, you will hear me tell you in one way or another that you'll never regret a decision that gives you more time with your spouse and family. And apart from some ridiculous application of that principle, you know, like I'm gonna quit my job just to be at home with my family, good luck eating. You know, that's not the application, but you will never regret a decision that gives you more time with your wife and, or your husband and children. And I get a little pushback. And people tell me, I understand, Marcelo, I understand what you're trying to say, but I'm all about giving my family quality time, not just quantity. Quantity is not important. Quality is. And that's what I'm shooting for. I'm going to give my family quality time. And then I push back a little bit, and I ask, well, what's quality time? And it really varies from individual to individual, the, the definition. And I said, how do you create it? You sit your kid down, and you say, okay, you got 30 minutes, you're on the clock, go. Quality time. Or do you just throw money at it? You know, that big extravagant vacation to Disney World or river rafting in Colorado or whatever? Do you throw money at quality time? That's how you create it? You know what, guys? Let me give you a suggestion that's based on 30-plus years of parenting and what I've seen, and that is this. Give your children quantity. Give them the preponderance of your time. And quality will get mixed into the mix as well. You know, you come home from work, you got to go to Home Depot, and you're tired. So they're probably tired too. Take them with you. you know, and as you're walking from the car to the store, put your arm around them and say, hey, you look as tired as I am. Tell me about your day. What's going on? You have to do fixer-uppers on Saturday? Take them along with you. Treat them and introduce them to the wondrous world of lawn care. <laughs> got to go to the post office. You got to go to the DMV. Take him with you. Teach him the art of standing in line. <laughs> it's a life skill. You know what I read? I read that the average person spends three years of their life waiting in line. In my case, it would be much, much, much longer because I have an uncanny, almost magical ability to pick the wrong line. I'll be at Walmart. Line A, two people, you know, 10 items or less, three items apiece. Line B, 10 people with just boatloads of stuff. I'll pick the two-person line. It'll take twice as long as that one. <laughs> it's my, my karma. <laughs> you know, if you were to subtract all the years I've been waiting in line from my life, I would be about 12. So don't follow me into, into lines, but take him with you. What if it's only one year you spend waiting in line? What if you spent a third of that four months with your kid talking? Can you imagine the, maybe the life-changing conversations and, and, and discussions you could have? Give them time. And also, what this passage assumes very clearly is that you will engage them. Sometimes we have a hard time distinguishing in our culture with, uh, about being about one another and being with each other. 
Being about one another is being in our own world in the same place. Being with each other is actually interacting. You know, when you're going to soccer practice and you got three kids in the back seat, they're going to three different fields, and you as dad or mom are staring off into the middle distance, and each of the kid is, kids is on his iPad or smartphone in their own little world, that's not time with each other. That's time about each other. We need to be with each other, engaging one another. And this passage assumes time and engagement. So we need to pursue the context where we make disciples is a context where mom and dad, grandparents love God. They love God in truth, so they, be, they, they literally enthrone the word of God in their hearts and then live it out live it out in the context, the purposeful living in the context of everyday life. And lastly, very quickly, um, with passion. If you want to make disciples, the truth needs to be communicated with passion. This is so important. That truth needs to be vividly portrayed, guys, if it's going to truly stick. That was David Hume's whole thesis, the English philosopher, his thesis on memory. He said, his essay on memory, he said that we remember things in relation to their initial intensity and vivacity. And that is true. If we want our children to fall in love with Jesus Christ and with his truth, we need to be passionate about those things. Conversely, if you want to bore your children in the next generation to Christianity and the word of God, just be boring about it. And the best way I know to be boring about Jesus and about the Word of God is to not understand it and yet hold our kids to some external code of behavior based on the Bible that we can explain. Just reduce Christianity to a litany of rules and you will bore the next generation with it. The Word needs to be vividly displayed. We are to model truth, God's truth, with diligence and genuine affection. In Deuteronomy 6, where I get this point, is that passion, zeal, is all over this passage. Verse 5, all, all, all. What are we to be alling about? Loving God. And this word is to be on our heart. That's a very charged word. And we are to teach these truths diligently to our children. As we pointed out several times, the term diligently in Hebrew is a very forceful command. Teaching and modeling God's truth, God's word, needs to be intentional, contextual, and energized by passion. You know, as a guy in ministry, I've met, let me pick on the guys a little bit here, because I be one. I have met with scores of men through the years. I mean, tons of guys. Both poundage-wise and number-wise. <laughs> and, you know, I've done men's retreats, I've spoken at men's conferences, I've I've met one-on-one, one-on-two, small Bible studies, etc. And some of the guys that I've met up with have a hard time getting excited about spiritual things. It's like, meh. But you introduce, I introduce sports into the equation. Football, basketball, baseball, fishing, whatever. And these guys, most of them just light up like a match. Their eyes get bigger, there's a glint in their eye. They start talking faster, louder. They start using their hands. They start talking about next year. There's always next year. And listen to me. I'm not here to knock sports. I love sports. I'm a Rams fan. Through all those years of misery, I've been a Rams fan. Right, Chad? You know about this. And I'm in seventh heaven this year. I love sports. I'm competitive. I compete with my kids. I didn't like it when they beat me at Candyland and Shoots and Ladders. I, I, I love to win too much. And if I were not saved, and if I were not married, and had a boatload of money so that I didn't have to work, I would spend all my time watching sports or anything resembling sports on television. I would watch competitive lawn mowing <laughs> at 3 a.m. It's like, oh, <gasps> He cut it into the lawn. That, oh, man, they're going to dock him for that. That's, that's, that's going to cost him a whole year lawnmower. It just went down the drain. He's not going to win anything. I'd watch anything. I'm not here to knock sports. What I'm saying is the things that we value 
are the things we're passionate about. And someone will say, because I know they're in here, wait a minute, I challenge you, Marcelo, because I'm just not a passionate person. I'm Norwegian. You know, 50% Norwegian, 25% Icelandic, and 25% just ice. My people don't know passion. It's a wonder we have children, you know. I'm not a rah-rah person. I'm not a cheerleader. I'm not, I, I'm not a, like the, the trembling voice of a, of a televangelist. I'm not that guy, the hamster on the wheel. I'm, I'm laconic. If you've ever seen Mount Rushmore, Marcelo, that's like a portrait of my ancestors in a, in a fit of ecstasy. <laughs> my idea of a roaring party is to bust out a Barry Manilow CD and, you know, low salt chips and salsa and a diet generic soda. I, I'm just not, I make Mitt Romney look like Mick Jagger. <laughs> I'm just not a passionate person. So I got you on this. This principle doesn't apply to me. And I would say you're dead wrong. And you show passion plenty. You don't express passion just by raising your voice or being excited like a gerbil. I've never really witnessed a gerbil. And <laughs> maybe they get excited like hamsters. I don't know. But you show plenty of passion. And your kids know what that passion is. What do you think about? Because what you think about is what's here. It's what you talk about. What do you Google? What do you read about? What do you study? What do you make time for? Where do you spend time? What do you save your money for? How do you spend your money? You give me five minutes with your kids and I will tell you what you're passionate about because they see it. God wants us to have a deep affection for him and his ways. And we're back to square one. The only way I know to develop an appetite for the things that God loves and for the person of God himself is how? Enthroning that word in the heart. Well, remember uh, the Lord Jesus taught this way, didn't he? He was passionate. I was just reading a couple nights ago in Mark chapter 3 where he entered the synagogue and there was a man with a withered hand there. And the Pharisees knew it and the leaders knew it and they said, I wonder if he's going to break the Sabbath and heal. And it says Jesus looked at them he said, is it, is it good to do good on Shabbat or to do evil? What's better? He had him pinned. He calls the man forward. He says, stretch out your hand. And his eyes, I mean, his hands were, his hand was healed. And then he looked at the leaders and he says, he looked at them with anger and he was grieved at their hardness of heart. He was passionate. Remember John chapter 2, the first cleansing of the temple? When Jesus walked into that place, he saw the temple had been turned, a house of prayer, his father's house, had been turned into a den, of, a den of brigands, thieves, money laundering, extortion, selling and buying in the temple. What did he do? Did he say, oh, guys, this is really too bad. It's really gone downhill since we last. Well, there goes the neighborhood. We'll have to try somewhere else. What did he do? He made a whip out of some uh, impromptu whip out of some cords. And it says he began to drive them out of the temple, including the oxen and the sheep. Those are skittish, big animals. They don't exit well when they're scared. And they're all trying to get out of there. And it says he took their money and he poured it out on the temple courts. So it's bouncing off the stones all over the place. And he took their tables and flipped them over and their accounting paraphernalia goes flying and you know do you think that made an impression on his disciples you know at first they were probably trying to learn the lesson that Goliath didn't learn duck <laughs> but it says in John 2:17 and i don't know how close to the proximity of Jesus actions this is maybe it's right on the coattails maybe it's later on that night but it says that his disciples remembered. Ah, uh, what? That it was written. Scripture. Zeal for your house will what? Consume me. 
And all of a sudden, that obscure verse, Psalm 69.9, came alive in 3D. And I'm sure they never looked at the temple complex quite the same way, right? You know what Jesus was doing? He was quite naturally acting upon a biblical principle that was on his heart. That was shaping his thinking. This is wrong. This is an injustice that was motivating his emotions. He was livid with righteous anger that was driving what his actions were doing, which is cleansing the temple. And in that passionate, holy passion of cleansing the temple, he communicated God's truth to his disciples in an indelible way. Passion. This is how we create the context for disciples. Let me give you a word of encouragement. It's not just about you techniquing your kids. Do you teach them the Bible actively? Yeah, in my book, I suggest like 12 different ways you could teach your children the Bible depending on age. The, the last book, the Discipleship, God's Plan for Parenting. But it's not just, it's not a program at all. It is a lifestyle. It is men and women, grandfathers and grandmothers, mothers and fathers, who make it their ambition to love God. To love God first, love Him most. And to love Him in truth because the Word of God is enthroned in their lives. And you know what? It's also adorning their lives contextually, day to day. And it is vividly displayed with a deep affection. That's how we create a discipleship home, a disciple-making home. It is by being transformed by those truths as parents and grandparents. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you have not given us a two, three, four-step program to change our kids, to tweak them. Lord, you want to change us. You want us... You want to make us lovers of, of you. You want to make us lovers of your word. You want to make us people who display the truth and display the truth with passion. That's the kind of home you want us to build to impact our progeny for Christ and for eternity. Lord, I know it can also be overwhelming. And I would pray for these dear parents and grandparents, Lord, that don't allow them to be overwhelmed. You've given them today, and today it's not too late to start living for your purposes, your desires. That one day follows another day, follows another day, and before we know it, we're creating a lifestyle by your grace, by your power, and for your glory. Impact children here, Lord, in, our, in this church, through these families, for your sake, in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.